Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, more importantly, about recovery. And it's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. We want to thank them for their continued support, because without them, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley, back in the flesh. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Had a little COVID scare at the house, huh? Yeah, we're, we're getting used to it now, like everybody, but... Uh, you know what it feels like? It feels like Oprah Winfrey when she gave away cars to everybody, but now <laughs> she's giving away COVID. You get COVID. You get COVID. You know what? Everybody gets COVID. Nice. It, it, it's crazy right now. It's out there. It's out there. Yeah. So, you know, we quarantined and uh, I didn't end up testing positive, so that's good. Uh, just my son did, but, you know, we're back. And, 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 you know, you have to be serious about it. I want to be a good dude, and so... You know, stayed home, uh, did remote work that those five days. And well, that, you so. were missed, and it's good to well, have thanks. you back. Thanks. Hey, do you ever want to answer truthfully when people go, what are you thinking? No, never. Because I want to <laughs> go, yeah, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking if I get tattooed muscles on my muscles, I'll have, I don't have to work out anymore. Oh, I've never had that thought, but that popped into my head this morning at the gym, and I was like, "Why am I even thinking that?" Get the six pack on there. Just get a tattooed on there, and then you have to work out. I have. That's what I'm doing this weekend. Then you like that, huh? Yeah. Hey, so I had an interesting uh, conversation last week with a client slash old friend from high school who I used to party with. Okay. So we go to this restaurant because that's part of my deal to talk to him and schmoozing, schmoozing. Yeah, you're good at that. And I show up at the restaurant. And in front of him is a shot and a beer. Ah. I sit down. The waitress comes up to me. Well, you have to drink, sir. I go, I'm water. She goes, okay. If you change your mind, I said, I won't. She goes, just let me know. I said, okay, cool. And so my buddy looks at me and goes, so how long are you going to do this for? And I go, <laughs> do, you really? do what? And he goes, this whole sobriety thing. And I go, uh, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're kind of tied to this. It's kind of your brand now. So how long are you going to do this for? And I it's go. kind of your brand now. Interesting. Yeah. And, Interesting. And, and, and I go, well, I, I think I'm going to do it for as long as I can. That's the ultimate goal. Uh, this is not a gimmick for me. You know what I mean? This wasn't to get me out of trouble. Um, this was to make my life better. And to my surprise, it is better. Yeah. Uh, I, you know what I mean? I really enjoy it. You know, and so we had a conversation back and forth. And when I got in the car, I was like, I wonder if people think that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and so I think some people, and it got me thinking to go back to the gym kind of a scenario, is that some people treat their recovery like a diet. 
And then the fact right. that, you know what I mean? That, right. that this, yep. If I do this, this is going to work. But you've got to make it like it's a life change. And that's the ultimate goal. And where my life has changed and going, I'm in absolute love with it. And, 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 and I don't want to see it. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. Well, from the outside looking in, I think your life is tremendously better. I mean, in, in every way. I still have hard days and uh, I still get kicked down, but I get up and uh, I just don't have to, to deal with it. And so I've been thinking about that a lot lately and I don't know why, but I was just like, you know, I'm not missing anything. I don't, when I jump in the shower and or laid my head on the pillow and, and I think about my day, I don't feel like I've missed anything because I wasn't able to have a drink. I don't feel like, yeah, like it's, I, it's a good way to look at it. I don't, I, I, I can't go, you know what? This would have been better. Had I had a cocktail, because I know the answer to that is no, it wouldn't have. Because you wouldn't have just had a cocktail. No, that wasn't in my. That's not in my DNA. Uh. Uh-uh. Right. Because if one's good, three's great, seven's awesome. <laughs> you know? Seven's just getting started. Yeah, and that's how my brain automatically thinks. It's right. just like if this is cool, then let's keep it going. Right. And 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 that's why. Um, well, let me ask you this, though, because that's interesting. This is a client, but more importantly, it's a friend from high school, somebody who's known you a long time, knew you, I guess, through all your party years, you oh, know, yeah. going way back oh, yeah. to high school time. But, I mean, did, how much did it bother you that he sort of – I mean, it sounded like he kind of didn't think you were being all that authentic or genuine, you know, calling it a brand and, and wondering how long are you going to do this. And then while you're thinking about that question, the next question is – to what degree might it bother you that other people might think the same thing? You know, people who are following you on Facebook or see you out and about, you know, people you've known a long time or just fans of, of you. To answer your first question, it didn't bother me because I thought more that he was wondering if this was a legitimate lifestyle change for me and wondering if I was truly happy. So it wasn't being judgy so much as he was just wondering. Yeah, like, maybe. like, are, are you able to sustain this? Are you happy? That's a decent question. You partied for a long time. And, and, and had a great time. I've seen a thousand faces and I rocked them all. And you, and it was epic partying. You partied with rock stars. Yeah. I mean, kicked yeah. out of dressing rooms. Uh, I mean, I've, I mean, I've done some stuff and, and, and some of it was really, really fun. Some of it was horrible. A lot of it was public. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I get his question. I yeah, do. no, and, and so I wasn't offended by it, but I, I was wondering if he was like, are you, I think it would have been better if he had said, let me ask you this, Casey, are you truly happy? Yeah. Because I think that's what he was asking in a roundabout way. Sure. Are you truly happy? Are you having fun? Are you fulfilled? But do you think there are some people that maybe are, are being pretty cynical about what they see you doing? And 100%. Thinking, oh, this is just his brand. Or like you mentioned earlier, oh, this is to get, get me out of trouble. So I'm just doing this until the heat gets off. Me, well, I've got or, news for people. I'm out of trouble. Yeah, you're out of trouble. And, Completely. Yeah, and, and I can do whatever I want. I right. choose to do this because I love doing this. Yeah. And are there people who are wondering if this is going to stick? 100%. Because I've got people, and I read the Facebook comments, I read the posts and all that, and I know people's names have popped up. And when the trouble went down, I remember people saying horrendous things about me. Some of them true, some of them not, and just being very mean-spirited. Yeah, that happens. And then I've seen them stick in my friend groups, and you know what I mean, and then and come along there. And I know there's people out there, if something should happen, they'll be the first to post on my Facebook, I told you so, that guy's a loser. Isn't that, isn't that, But I, I, I think that's, that's the dark side of human nature. Yeah. And the dark side of that, 
that distance that we have, we're separated by a few degrees when we're online, you know, and, and that dark side comes out. That's too bad. But you're right. It'll happen. But here's the different Casey now that is today. I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me and my family. That's the key, right? Right? Yeah. Because I don't, I, I want you to like me, but if you do or you don't, it's not going to affect my everyday. Because I know who I am, I know what I'm about, and I know where I want to be. And so th- that's why I'm more confident today, believe it or not, uh, than I have ever been. And Oh, I, I can see it. majority I, I of my career you. was based on a pseudo confidence. You know what I mean? It was yeah. it was kind of there but it wasn't kind of liquid confidence. Yeah, I was always afraid that somebody could take it from me. But what I've got right now, nobody can take it from me except yeah. me. And I'm not willing to pay like the it. price to lose that. I like it. That's a great attitude. So that's, you know, so it was it was kind of crazy of, you know, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And, and and but Caught I was, you off guard, I could yeah, tell. Yeah, but I was like, huh. You know, okay. But, you know, maybe that's a nice little sobering reminder that, uh, you know, not everybody knows kind of what you're thinking and what's inside of you. And, and it's not important for them to, but uh, it's important that every once in a while you do that check in with yourself. And that's what this podcast is. And when we started this, uh, uh, we're coming up on three years. The original idea was to share my recovery. Right. And those of others in recovery and let people know that recovery is possible. And I think we both thought that's a it it won't last out. We'll tell your story and that might be it. But the reality is, is every day I'm forced with new uh, consequences, new options. And how do I navigate this and what do I do? And the stuff that I'm dealing with three years sober is not what I was dealing with one year sober. Life changes and all that other stuff. I've got some exciting news to share with you coming up. Uh, I can't yet, but it's going to be really cool. Well, I do know that you're a great blanket salesman. Oh, I love Minky Because how many of those dang Minky Couture blankets did you sell me before Christmas? About broke my bank account. So here was a side note. So one of my other jobs, I was dressed as Elf on the Shelf. And And I walk in there and and you're DJing the Christmas music Elf on the Shelf. And I've been telling you about these blankets for years, and you come in and uh yeah you got me all hyped up and i walked out a poor man <laughs> no but <laughs> but that, they were great they were great i called you three days later yeah. and said how did the blankets go over for christmas what did your kids say yeah it was the gift of the of the season they loved it yeah absolutely they said we've always wanted a minky dad we just didn't know you'd get us one yeah yeah oh that's right <laughs> they said we never dared ask for them because they're expensive but they they always wanted one and and ashley loves hers so yeah, so no, they were great. I'm I'm giving you a hard time, but you're great. You're a great salesman. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> hey, we've got a great guy coming in today. He's going to share his story. He also does a podcast. His name is Cameron. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Cameron Jackson. He's one of the hosts of the podcast, The Other Side of Hell. We're going to hear more about that podcast a little later on in the show. But first, let's get to your story. Cameron, are you a Utah boy? I am, born and raised. Uh, how young are you? 
Oh, I just turned 40. Weren't you guys just talking about 40? Yeah. It's a big one. Was it a big one for you? I mean, it came and went pretty fast. Let me ask you this. What are sober birthdays like? Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm sober or because I'm old. <laughs> it's but, both. You know, they're just kind of chill now. And that's okay, right? Yeah, and I remember everything. That, and and yeah. that's even better. I, I think boring is okay. I've had to accept that. But, I usually tell people, if life feels kind of boring, you're probably doing all the right things. And right. See, I, I got to disagree with you guys because I don't <laughs> think life is boring. I don't – you know what I mean? I think that you can find those fun, interesting times and, and, and inside those boring moments that you think are boring. And when you look back, those are the moments you think about. That's true. Well, I guess the, the argument would be that it's boring to an outside perspective. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's boring. I did exactly what I wanted to do. You know what, to me, years. was I, don't, I mean, some of the stuff I did in my active addiction, which I thought was exhilarating and fun, was really boring and tedious. You know what I mean? When you think about it, <laughs> right. you, you know, just sitting on the back, drinking a beer, smoking a cigar day in and day out. I thought it was fun when an outsider looked in and goes, that's pretty boring. Pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I guess it's, it just depends on your perspective. So let's start with the beginning. Uh, early life? Let's go back to the day. Yeah, I... You know, I had a pretty normal childhood. It was it was everything that you would probably think it would be. I was like the youngest of four and parents that loved me. They divorced when I was 25, but that didn't have much of an impact on life growing up. I grew up in a small town, South Weber. And man, I, I you know, I just remember having a hell of a lot of fun when I was a kid. Sure. And so did you have any... Uh... I don't know, temptations? Did you party in high school? Did you party in junior high? Uh, were you a good kid? Uh, I was I was mostly good, you know? Like, I had I had some really good friends who uh, we just didn't need that. Like, we were just more creative. We liked to have fun. We liked to be funny. We liked to do goofy things. And that's how it was for a long time. And then eventually, I remember I had an older brother. My oldest brother uh, smoked. And I remember thinking that was just nasty. Cigarettes. Yeah. Why would you smoke? You know. Um, but I also really looked up to him. You know, he's my oldest brother. He was super awesome. Maybe he knows something that I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Let's try it out. So eventually, like curiosity got the better of me, and that would be sort of a reoccurring theme: curiosity getting the better of me, and me crossing those lines that I said I would never do. And I ended up smoking a cigarette. And that first cigarette hit, and it was just like, boom. Like, nobody tells you that you get a buzz off a cigarette. Like, And I did. And I just remember, like, feeling uh, out of body, out of mind, and also shame. Shame? Like, what did I just do? You felt shame instantaneously. Oh, sure. Sure. Was that something you were taught by your parents not to do growing up? Well, I think I grew up with the common religion in the area. And I sort of fell away when I was like 12 or 13, but that those principles were still there. It's the wrong thing to do. Exactly. Shouldn't use drugs, alcohol, tobacco, those things. Drugs, alcohol, tobacco, shouldn't, you know, all the sexual stuff, shouldn't do any of that stuff. Well, it becomes part of your your moral code. Um, And that's true for anybody, how they're raised, you know, whether it's, you know, a religious thing, a community civic thing, you know, we're kind of raised with do's and don'ts. And so that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's just where it came from for me. You know, I think it can come from anywhere. So how old were you when you smoked that first cigarette? I was 12. 
Okay, so kind yeah. of a young guy, sixth pretty, grade, maybe. Pretty early. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I didn't really do a ton with that until like 15 or 16. But then, So the shame kept you away for, oh yeah. for a while. Oh, yeah. And I, it, I just, it was unnecessary, right? It's like, yeah, you know, like whatever. I mean, it's hard for a 12-year-old to find smoke breaks. Oh, yeah. They don't give those out in yeah, sixth grade. It's not they like don't. something that's built in. It's like, yeah. hey, for the 12-year-old, smoke them if you got them. Well, <laughs> and cigarettes for that matter. Like, yeah, you right. can yeah. just go get cigarettes anywhere. But see, I grew up as a kid, and I remember, because I was able to go down and buy cigarettes for my mom from the 7-Eleven. She would handwrite me a right. note, and I could go down and get her cigarettes. And th- I would pick up some candy cigarettes. That's for myself. They had them, and you blew them, and chalk blew out. And oh you, yeah, everybody you, played with those. You thought they were the coolest bubble things. gum cigars. Yeah. So about different 50, times. About fifteen, you, you find yourself with a cigarette in your hand again. Yep. Yeah. Well, and and repeatedly too. Like I was taking my lunch money at that point, and I would literally, and that's when cigarettes were the cost of lunch money. Yeah. You know, and I could get a pack of smokes for my lunch money, and that, you know, at that point I was hanging out with older people. But and see, that's that's the craziness about this is that, I mean, now looking back over these years, we're so bright. You were giving up nutrition right. and food <laughs> yeah. for a pack of cigarettes. Already. Stuff is. that your parents were giving you to go, hey, don't forget to eat today because it's important. And then you're like, nah, I think I'm going to buy smokes. I'm going right. to smoke my lunch. Yeah, well, because I knew I could get food. Yeah. yeah. Oh, food <laughs> you will can bump come. food somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, cigarettes. Did you have places as a teenager that you knew you could buy cigarettes? Like most kids in, in towns kind of know the stores where they can kind of get away oh, yeah. with that. There was legendary, like that 36th Street Market. You're the second in, person to say this. I bought beer there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I went there to get smokes and they ID'd me. And I was just like, that's not what I've heard at all. Like, <laughs> that's not how this is supposed to go I down. I think if you know the rules, yeah, you're like, just supposed to give them to me. Right, yeah. So, I mean, I in the end, it was always somebody buying them or we were stealing them. Yeah. Know? yeah. But, so did uh, cigarettes lead to other things? Cigarettes in and of themselves, I wouldn't say did, but I, I feel like once 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 I'm given this shame, like once I have this notion that I'm a bad kid, it becomes easier and easier to sort of just, you know, toe that line and, and dip the toe into the bad kid sort of world. Like now I'm parking lot crew. Now I'm part of that world. And I so, need a Levi jacket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got it. Hacky sack. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then from that point on, it's just like you sort of flirt with all these things that you said you'd never do. Like, well, what else was I told not to do? The drink. Oh, Isn't it fun. interesting how shame works that way? Shame is a really tough emotion to have. But instead of shame being something like guilt's a little different than shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt. I think is designed to sort of motivate change, positive change. Like you feel guilty and you're like, oh, I need to apologize or I need to fix something about my life. But shame actually tears you down. Mm-hmm. And shame does kind of create an identity that's very negative. So it's easier to to have that self-fulfilling prophecy where you're like, well, uh, I feel shameful. I must be a bad kid. Bad kids are, are doing bad things. And so I've got to head out to the parking lot, make some friends with the bad kids because that's who I am. And you start heading down that path. And it's interesting how shame destroys us instead of motivates us to change. Well, you look at it this way. Guilt, there's a conviction. There's an answer. You know right. what I mean? I am guilty of this. I did do this. There's no disputing this. Something you this. can point to. I, I did this. Shame 
it's a it's a gray area. You know what I mean? You can get away with it. You can go, that was shameful. I mean, I shouldn't have been eating ice cream at three in the morning, but yeah. nobody really saw it. Well, and so it's only me that knows. And we so we won't go too far down this path, but for people who are listening and are interested in kind of psychology and therapy and those sorts of things, do some reading on shame. There's a lot of research that shows how destructive shame is and a lot of very self destructive adult behaviors stem all the way back to significant uh, experiences with shame as a child or a young a young person. So the cigarettes do they lead to alcohol? Eventually, I I, I it, you know it's like we were just saying like I started hanging out with the bad kids right, and the bad kids were getting into all sorts of things, including alcohol. And it was all I feel like it's all from everybody's older brother. Like oh my older brother's drinking, I'll drink. Mm-hmm. And so monkey I, see, monkey do. Right. Well, and so that's exactly what happened. Right. So I started drinking once in high school. I drank. And I got drunk. Like, I drank to get drunk. I must have had, like, 10 or 11 beers. But for me, it wasn't like – I hear a lot of people tell their story, and and we hear that it's sort of instantaneous. Like, you're instantly in love, or it just takes away all the bad. And for me, it wasn't like that. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't like, this is going to be a part of my life forever and ever and ever. It wasn't like that for me. Like, it, 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 it hit later, and we, we'll get into that eventually, but, like, for me – I, you know, I drank once. I didn't really go back to it. I went back to those good friends that I had. You know, we started having healthy and clean fun. And I had people around me that were using all sorts of stuff. And I was just like, I don't, I don't need that, you know. And then eventually, like sort of my early 20s, curiosity gets the better of me. And I smoke weed for the first time. And that was sort of like, they call it a gateway drug. I don't know how much I agree with that, but for me, it was absolutely a gateway. Yeah, and um, I think it's probably different for everybody. You know, the reason they say that is because it lowers your inhibitions. Uh, it makes life a little bit different, and you feel that. And so you go, well, if this is that good, what's this other stuff they're talking about? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, and really, like, for me, like, it was sort of the first thing that, that really had its hooks in me. Like, I mean— I didn't smoke weed again for like another year and then again it was like six months and then it was like three months and then eventually it was every day I was smoking weed. And, you know, I'm looking through carpet when I don't have it. Like I know there's some weed in here somewhere, you know. (laughs) So, I mean, and that's true addict behavior. Right. But eventually like it escalates into like, well, what else is out there? And in my late 20s, I click with this party crew and we're partying every weekend. And... And it's a lot like you're talking about, right? Where it's like, that's just so much of your lifestyle. And for me, it was like, as a kid, I'm the youngest of four, so I'm always clamoring for attention. And now, like in high school, I was sort of an odd duck, didn't really fit in anywhere. But now I've got this magic elixir. For me, it was like a cocktail, right? Like if I have just the right amount of weed, just the right amount of alcohol, just the right amount of pills, I'll fill on that spiritual plane where I don't care what you think of me and you're going to love me no matter what. <laughs> it's like, I was like Mr. Clown, you know, like I was the life of the party. I was the guy that's, you know, dressing up in women's clothing just to get a laugh. And, and that's how it went for, for, you know, for, for a lot of years. And so, but just so we can keep everybody on the same page. So you start with weed it goes from one year to six months to three weeks to every day. Mm-hmm. And then you, you talk about this magic elixir, that being a combination of alcohol, weed, and pills. Do you remember the first time you got pills? Well, let me ask you this. What was your DOC? What ultimately was your DOC? For me, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, 
amphet or not amphetamine opiates. Okay. Uh huh. So so pills were were your ultimate. Uh, how did you get introduced to those? Well, it's it, the same party scene, right? Like for for me, uh, we would be hanging out and partying, and people would just introduce some Laura tabs and and. I dare say for a long time it would be something that I would add to the mix, but it was never anything I absolutely had to have. In the beginning, were you hesitant to, to try that? I mean, when people it, are handing stuff out. Did you did you just gobble it down, or did you did you think, oh, I don't know if I should do that? You know, I was really hesitant when it came to ecstasy. As I remember, I was at a party once, and one of my one of my homeboys brought out ecstasy, and not only did he have ecstasy, but you know, he crushed it into a line. And it like felt like that was crossing a line, right? Like that was snorting it, snorting, snorting ecstasy, like pills I could always justify because I had back pain, right? So opiates were always some, like I would get a prescription for opiates Mm -hmm. and it would last me. I would take them as prescribed. Imagine that, you know, and it, it would, it would last me as long as it's supposed to, but ecstasy would make its first appearance. And that's when I knew like, okay, this is. This, I'm, I'm making a conscious decision to cross that line and do something that I said I would never do. And I remember like total peer pressure, right? Like I'm just sitting in this room and I look over at my buddy and I'm like, you jerk. Like, <laughs> you, you know, I'm going to do this because we're all here. We're in this situation. And I said I would never do this. And and I did. And, you know, like ecstasy, I really liked, you know. And, and again, like once I crossed that line, it felt like, okay, like, you know, the gloves are off. Like, let's see, let's see what all this stuff is about. And, uh, and then I ventured into it and Oxycontin for me, again, what, what I had seen was that the people that I was hanging out with were experimenting with Oxycontin. Like it wasn't uncommon for us to be at a party and somebody to break out a Percocet or a Laura tab that, that was pretty common. Right. But Oxycontin was like a whole new deal. And, and again, people are crushing it and snorting it in this party atmosphere. And I didn't want anything to do with it. I really didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't care. I was just like, whatever, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to try it. But then what had happened is I had a cousin who I was really, really close with who had been diagnosed with cancer and he was getting every pain pill you can possibly imagine. And he was my age and he was a part of the same scene. So what's he doing with his excess stuff? He's selling it, you know? And I would see all my friends come around and buy this stuff from him. And eventually I'm just like, I'm going to try it, you know? So I ask him for one. And we're going to find out what he did and if he got one. Coming up in just a few seconds, you're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Cameron Jackson. Uh, his bro- cousin is diagnosed with cancer and uh, ends up selling his excess uh, pain pills. Uh, you see your friends coming around. Uh, you finally get a little curious and you ask him if you can have one. And what was his answer? Yeah, he, he, he gave me one. I mean, and these, and these these are pills that he's selling for 50 bucks a pop. Wow. For one. So Fam- for family one, for discount. One pill. Yeah. So now I guess I'm naive. Is one pill enough to last you one day? Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's enough for a, a party atmosphere. Right. Okay. So a Friday night, one pill, that that's all you need. Okay. Um, and even that, you know, it was me and my girlfriend at the time. We're splitting it. And, and this was probably Oxycontin. 
Correct. Right. And so for the listeners, you know, that's a much more powerful effect than the things that are more common today, like Lortab or Percocet, which are still prescribed. Uh, I guess I'm not even sure if you can get Oxycontin anymore. I think you can, but it's under special circumstances because of the whole opiate uh, crisis that's happened around the whole country and realizing the effect that these powerful pills have. But I assume because your cousin had been diagnosed with cancer that they were giving him the top shelf, most powerful opiates that, that they had available at that time. Right. I mean, and this is the during the height of the, the epidemic. Right. right. So this is 11, 12 years ago. And and this is before anybody knew it was anything. Nobody was talking about it. And and yeah, so I try it. I try it on a Friday night. And and from that point forward, like I can literally chalk up my my downward spiral up to that moment, because even though I was drinking every weekend, alcohol wasn't a problem like it. It was something I could take it or leave like it. It it was something that I could stop doing if I thought it was going to affect my diet, you know, like and you weren't laying awake at night wondering how you were going to get the next alcoholic drink. Exactly. But I began obsessing over pain pills and I began like more specifically Oxycontin, like all of a sudden it flipped a switch in me and everything was a problem because when I couldn't get the pills, I would go to alcohol and or when I had the pills, I would go to alcohol to intensify the effect, right? So now all of a sudden alcohol is a problem and pain pills are a problem and and food is a problem, you know. Everything. What do you mean food is a problem? Well, I mean I'm doing everything in excess, right? So it's like it's like I remember because I, I pride myself on nutrition. Like I, I was, you know, going to the gym, I was exercising, eating right. And then all of a sudden, like, I, I no longer care about that stuff. Like I no longer care about like how, how healthy I'm being. I no longer care about like if I'm eating fast food, I no longer care about any of that stuff. So all of that should have been, or maybe wasn't, but was it red flags to family members and friends going, Hey Cameron, what's going on here, bro? Well, and that's the thing is like at that time, like I'm the youngest of four, my older siblings all have their own families. Like my parents are divorced and they're, you know, sort of starting their own families, like getting remarried and things like that. And so they, they knew what I wanted them to know. Oh yeah, like they didn't. They were master manipulators. Oh yeah, exactly. And and nobody and nobody was going to stop by my house to check on me. And I I took advantage of that. You know, like I knew that. I knew that I could pretty much just do whatever it was I wanted. Fly under the radar. And I was I was great at it. You know, and uh, and and it went that way. And here's the thing too: is I'll say, I was naive to my own my own illness, right? Like I didn't realize just how bad things had gotten until I tried to stop, right? What made you want to stop? Um, I was finding myself doing things I, I never said that I would do, like drinking at work. Um, that for me was like, what is going on? Like, And and what what happened was I found myself in a situation where I I needed more pills, and I didn't have the money for it. And I had no way to get the money for it. And and I was like, this has got to stop. Like this, you know, like I'm I'm going crazy over not having this substance. You know, and what what is that? And so I knew that something had to be done. But I was just so naive to 
to my own powerlessness. So you thought maybe you could just stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> in true like alcoholic addict fashion, like I, I was absolutely dramatic about it. Like I, we have a cabin in Southern Utah and you don't want to go there in, in the wintertime. And it's January. And I'm like, I'm going to go to the cabin. I'm going to get away <laughs> from, from everybody that can get me any stuff. And I'm going to just lock myself up there for the weekend. I'll withdraw. I'll, you know, come back and I'll just be good. You know, that's, that's my thinking. And, you know, needless to say, like, it didn't go down that way. <laughs> um, and actually, like, what ended up happening was I was so, I was so, still affected like i don't want to get into it too much but what i'll what i'll say is that i ended up finding some stuff at the cabin that i took in mass quantities just to try and get get the edge off take the edge off and come monday it's time for me to come back to the real world and i i i can't i i I literally cannot make the drive and so that action spurred the moment that I had to be honest with my family and be like, listen, I'm, I'm here at the cabin. Like I, I have a problem with pills, you know, how, how long up to that point, how long had you been using opiates until you went off to the cabin? Um, three years on and off and about two years consecutively. Um, so it had been a problem for like two years at that point. And really the only thing that I was prepared to admit was that the pills were an issue. And and so that's what I did. I, I told my family. I told my dad and my mom and 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 everybody, like, hey, this is this is my situation, this is my deal. Like I came up here to try and be done with it and I can't. Like I I don't know what to do. And so Did you need someone to come to the cabin to help you? Yep. Yeah. I had uh my brother actually lived not, not too far away, so he came and picked me up. What were your symptoms? I mean, I, I, if you don't mind sharing, no, no, like, no, I, I think it's important for people to know what's hard about it. Like, what well, you're there in the cabin by yourself. Uh, what are the symptoms that are stopping you from being able to get back in the car and drive home on Monday? The biggest thing was um, my vision was impaired. So my vision was really shaky. I couldn't um, actually focus on anything. Um, and the other thing was, is that by this time I was withdrawing from alcohol and that was something I didn't even, I didn't even know that you could withdraw from alcohol, you know? And so my hands were shaky. Um, I felt neurologically that things just weren't, things weren't right. Um, and, and I had massive like intestinal issues. My guts were just all twisted. Um, and, and, you know, beyond that, I'm just there's this immense fear and anxiety within me because I know that I'm too messed up to go anywhere. So with your family, well, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's probably, that's a pretty scary thing because you went into it in sort of a naive fashion mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I'm going to do this big gesture, you know, I'm going to go down there. You almost probably thought like I'm giving myself a spa weekend to kind of get this stuff out of my system. And then all of a sudden you found yourself panicking Maybe I'm not going to be okay. Oh yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was crazy, and that was the moment that I think I had the most fear around the whole situation, and it was just, just, I got, I'm supposed to be back to work now. I've got to tell my family, um, and what will they think of me? Like this drug addict son, 
you know, I've got to have people come and rescue me. Like, what? Well, I mean, the secret's out. Yeah. The, people are going to know. Pretty much, you know. But there was also this sense of relief, too, that came with it because I was just like, I was sort of done making decisions. I was just like, okay, you guys take it from here for a minute. But you know you weren't making decisions then. You know what I mean? If, if, in, in, in the attic brain, right. your brain was doing whatever it could to get there. You have moments of clarity that you thought maybe the cabin will work. Mm-hmm. So what happens when your brother uh, comes and gets you? Well, it's funny because what had happened is he took me back to his house, which was not too far away. But what had happened is I had stopped at his house on the way up there. And he had a son who was uh, was sick. He had some. He had a really bad cough, and so he had some cough medicine with codeine in it, right? And so I'm an addict. What do I, I find an opportunity and I take a swig off that? And I had ended up telling him about that, and he told his wife, and she wouldn't let me in the house because she was worried, you know, for her for her kids. So even, you know, here I am like at the mercy of my family members and one of them is refusing to, to even let me into the house. And I'm just like, I, you know, like what? I can't be mad at her. No. I totally did that. You weren't mad at yeah. her at the moment though? I mean, I was. Uh, You've probably pretty desperate shape. It yeah. I like. mean, I, I was, uh, I understood in a way. I mean, I was also like, I don't know what I'm going to do then, mm-hmm. but. So I ended up just hanging out in their garage for a minute until she finally calmed down enough to just let me at least sleep on their couch. And then I had family from from uh, from this area that went down and picked me up and, and drove me home. So I was on their couch for a, for a night. But So what was your family's response to you telling them your secret? You know, my dad, here's the thing, is my dad, my dad and I have always had like this sort of, distant relationship like my dad's a great guy and we have a great relationship now but growing up I always had like wondered if he liked me I was just like I you know like do you even like me and my dad when he found out that there was an issue he just swooped in grabbed me took me to his house he put me on quarantine and then he proceeded to like learn everything he could about what was going on like what he did his research and he just jumped head first into it and and from that moment forward he was like my biggest advocate and and still to this day he's that way so did you end up going do you have a rock bottom or was that your rock bottom you think well that, that was the moment that spurred um me beginning to get help right um I would still go through this process of convincing myself that I could successfully use. Or you could drink but not use pills. Exactly. They call that uh, negotiating your sobriety. And a lot of people do that when they first get into it. And that's why sometimes when we talk about the DOC being your drug of choice, it's somewhat misleading. Because your DOC is usually the drug that brings you down, but chances are there's been others along the way. Multiple. And and the reason you rest on this one is either because it makes you feel better, or it's more accessible, or it's cheaper, or whatever it is. But when you when you when you tell somebody your DOC is this, sometimes that gives people permission to do other things that's not that. Well, and you see with people, and and maybe this is your story too, Cameron. But when the DOC isn't available, boy, you, you pretty quickly find other things to fill in the gap, right? Oh, yeah. So I mean, you did so. That- an addict is an addict. It, you know, the 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 DOC is a little bit irrelevant. 
but important to, to prove to that point. When Cameron went to the cabin to get off of pills, he took something there to take the edge off. Right, right. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean. Just, and in your mind, that was okay because it wasn't the pills. Right. Oh yeah. Like and 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 mind you, like that that experience was was the catalyst to get sober. But I also learned that that's the way I think. Right. Like I sort of was able to sort of see at that point that this is. This is flawed. There's something flawed in my thinking. And that's that is a beautiful, you know, leap in maturity for a person who's struggling with substance abuse or addiction to realize it's actually not as much about the substance, it's about me. It's about how I think. Mm-hmm. And that's an evolution in in your progress to be able to say I started off at the cabin thinking I'll just get this stuff out of my system and I'm fine with no real self-awareness of how you think as an addict. But then later down the road realizing, oh, it's actually more about how I think that leads me to the substances than it is the substances themselves. He's good. He's a doctor. (laughs) I really like him. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to find out how he gets on his road to sobriety in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery. So you said it started you on your road to recovery. You have some self-awareness going on. Uh, you navigate or negotiate your sobriety for a while. But what is the ultimate turnaround, I guess? What, what is the – because a lot of times in recovery we talk about something that just clicks, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And you go, okay, this is what we got to do. Here we go. Yeah. Well, there's definitely a moment. You know, For me, at that point, like I, I uh, started going to counseling – and I thought that, you know, hey, I'll just go see this guy maybe once or twice a week and that will get it so I can drink successfully. That was all I ever wanted, right, was just to be able to use without consequences. And uh, and I did that for a long time. But then eventually it got to a point where what, it, what had happened for me is um, I was in a situation where I was going to go spend the weekend with my brother, that same brother, that same oldest brother, right? Um, who, whom I absolutely love. And, and he asked me, he was like, dude, I, you know, please don't come over drunk. And he wanted me to go over on a Sunday. And he was the one person that knew the full extent of what I was dealing with. Um, and, and I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, you know, fine, whatever, that's cool. And, uh, and that Sunday came and I was hammered. I, I could not, I could not stay sober. And, and I knew it at that point, I knew that even when I tried and I had every reason to not drink, I was going to drink. And, uh, and so really for me, like what, what ended up happening is I was at a buddy's house and I knew that he had a a gun and, um, I went and grabbed his gun and I, I, to this day, I don't know, I don't remember if it was loaded or not, but I, I, I put his gun against my head because I wanted to see if it was going to feel like the right thing to do. And, and it didn't, it did not feel like the right thing to do, but I knew that that action meant something. And I had ended up sharing that with my brother that I had done that. And he said, dude, we've got to get you some help. And, and even then, like I, I couldn't make the call. I couldn't, you know, right? Like I knew of a treatment center and he had known of a treatment center and I couldn't physically bring myself 
to to call them on my phone and so he called for me and and then I got into treatment and that's when I was like introduced to this world of recovery and I would like to say that that's when I got sober but that's not you know like I still had to go through a little bit of back and forth until honestly I I had be, been beaten into submission enough that I was out of ideas and I stopped believing my own garbage. And I, I said, I don't know anything. Everything I thought I knew about the world is, is completely wrong. So I need you guys to tell me what to do and I'll do it. A lot of people have come to this podcast and sat right where you are and said, I just was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I didn't know what to do. And I, even in my own addiction, I, you know, I fancy myself to be a pretty intelligent guy, thought I can outthink this, I can outsmart this, I can outmaneuver this, and uh, I tried for a lot of years, and I had to come to the same conclusion that I can't do this. And I think that was the toughest thing for me was the admitting part that, and I think that's why you didn't make that phone call. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you, 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 I, I got to admit that I can't figure this out, and that's a tough pill to swallow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the toughest pill to swallow, but it was such a beautiful turning point. Like, I I absolutely had to get there. Like, I, because we talk about rock bottom, and and rock bottom can mean a lot of things. Like, for me, putting that gun against my head was rock bottom. Like, I never lost a job. I never got a DUI. I never, you know, uh, killed anybody else. But me putting that gun against my head was, was absolutely rock bottom. And, and so, from that point forward to get to get into this world of recovery and and see I don't have any clue how life works. You guys have got to tell me. Well, it's that admitting that you're powerless in in that situation and that's so counterintuitive to being an adult. As an adult, we do everything we can to be powerful or be in control of our lives, right? In fact, we're encouraged to, right? Nobody, nobody's teaching you to be powerless. It's the opposite. Your parents are trying to teach you. Society's trying to teach you. You need to grow up, be in control, take care of things, be an adult, be powerful in your own sphere and have influence over your life. That creates happiness. Yet in this, <laughs> that's why it's counterintuitive because in this instance, that is required for real uh, sobriety and recovery is to start at some point with that admission of I'm really powerless over this issue and I have to turn it all over to either a higher power and or other people, somebody, something, some program that can help me change because I'm powerless to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And so you did a, a couple of different stints at uh, rehabs? Yeah, twice. I went through twice. Mm-hmm. And what what was it about the second time that made sense? The second time, um, I when I when I went in the first time, I still held on to these ideas that okay, I've I've I'm a little ahead of the curve here. Like I've I've been in counseling for a year, <laughs> you know. Like I have a little bit of, of you have some wisdom to share. Exactly. <laughs> and I I honestly, you know, I look back at that first stint, and I'm just like, oh man, I bet they wanted to just choke me. Yeah, because <laughs> you, you know? did what a lot of addicts do when they sit down in those rooms. I'm not like you, right? I'm different, mm-hmm. and you hear that all the time. You know, I'm. I'm different you guys i mean i don't know what you guys have been doing but I, here, i'm different and it wasn't until some guy who was tatted up from head to toe looked at me and goes yo bro you ain't different you're just like us <laughs> sit down and shut up and mm-hmm. i was like 
whoa. I guess they didn't tell you who I am. You're not supposed to talk to me like that. <laughs> this guy was like, you're an idiot. Shut up and just sit there. And I did. And I listened. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you got to that point eventually. Yeah. it was. I mean, it really, it was just this level of, of humility, right? Like I, I went in and I was just like, I, I, <laughs> I, I obviously, like look at the last year of my life. Obviously, like I don't know anything. So when I was in the first time, I had this same attitude, this cocky attitude like you're talking to. I relapsed in treatment. Like, don't listen to me. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here, you know? Right. But they let me stay. And then and then after that, I couldn't put together a, a clean 30 days. I, 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 and eventually it just got right back into, man, I'm looking for pills. I'm, I'm, you know, drinking every day. And I knew, like, here's the thing. is like the, the point that I got to with that was I knew that it wasn't working anymore. Uh, the pills, the pills and the drinking weren't working. And I literally had this, this, this thought. I was like, either I've got to upgrade my drugs or I've got to go back and get help. And I knew that upgrading my drugs meant heroin. And I had been in treatment with heroin addicts. And I feel like the difference between heroin addicts and what the rest of us have to deal with is night and day. They are they're on a whole nother level when it comes to recovery. And I knew that I couldn't go down that road. Like I wasn't willing to go down that road. And so I, I got help. You know, I made, I made, I made the call myself that time, you know, but so, so how I, long have you been sober for now? So, um, six and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And what are you doing to keep yourself sober? I mean, a lot of people work an after program, uh, an example of this podcast is, is kind of some of my after program. It's the way I keep my toe in it and, and stay connected and help out others who have helped me get where I am today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm a 12 step guy. Um, I'm an, I'm an AA guy. I go to, you know, two or three meetings a week. I have commitments and I stay really plugged into that community. Um, one way I do that is actually Instagram. Like I have found this whole, recovery community on Instagram and and I have the podcast that we do mm-hmm. the other side of heck the other the other well, side of heck yeah it's really <laughs> HE double hockey sticks but since this is KSL radio we don't know if we can say it we've had a big fight with the producer going I don't think you there can say it off air controversy <laughs> yeah. but yeah so it's the other side of hell <laughs> or the other side of beep. I guess yeah. Casey wins yeah. that argument. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I – and so – but yours is more of an adult uh, conversation. I mean, we have one here, but because of our audience and who might be listening, uh, we kind of try to keep it true as we can, but a little bit cleaner. But what, what, what is the format of your podcast? Which is great, by the way. I mean, I love what you guys do here, and I, I think that there's, there's definitely a, a – uh, a great place for it. You know? and, and, and we're appreciative of our audience and we love that we get to share the message of recovery every week. And so we are grateful for that. But mm-hmm. yours is more, a little more. We definitely like we are raw and edgy and, you know, like we're, we're just two guys, you know, my, my co-host Willie um, is one of my, you know, really good friends. He came into treatment when I was in treatment and, and, and gave the message to me, you know, he had two years of of sobriety at the, that time. And, and, uh, and, you know, we just, we're just two dudes, you know, like we're, 
we're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, <laughs> you know. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, like we have a disclaimer at the front, like, hey, we're just two dudes doing this thing, you know, like, and, and just talking about the stuff that we deal with. And, and, you know, like we talk about it in a vulgar way. And I don't know if that's good or bad or if it's your brand of recovery, but, it might be. Well, I know. think one thing that's that's really great is authenticity. I think we do a clean version of authenticity on this show. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, as with all our guests who have come and really tried to be open and honest about their experience, because if it's not authentic, it's not going to help anybody. And so I think that anybody who wants to hear two guys talk in an authentic way about their experience would enjoy your show. Um, and I, I don't think there's that that's a bad thing at all. In fact, one of my favorite things about kind of blowing up the stereotype of addiction that's happening all over the country, not just on podcasts like yours and ours, but it is the fact that it, it has become this authentic conversation that people from all walks of life are talking about their experiences with addiction and substance abuse. And and uh, that touches any anybody who's listening can find a connection there because there every, there's every different type of person has dipped their toe into this and they know that if they're authentic, they're going to reach other people. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are out there doing it. Well, I think we could bring it back to the beginning of the podcast when we say uh, addiction doesn't discriminate. Right. Uh, you know, most of us think of uh, addiction when we were younger is, you know, some guy that's uh, on the side of the street, got long hair, multiple earrings and a lot of tattoos. Either either major party scene and irresponsibility or kind of the homeless kind of downtrodden sort of thing. And those were the kind of the two faces of addiction that most of us grew up with. We've had Mormon moms. We've had oral surgeons. We've had doctors. We've had dentists. We have had lawyers. Successful business people, highly educated folks, and everything in between. And so that's what it's about because we said the opposite of addiction is an abstinence. Most people think that. They go, you know, especially those who are naive to the world of addiction, they'll go, kind of like you in the cabin. Well, Mm -hmm. just stop. Just stop. Then you won't have that addiction anymore. But it's not that simple. That's not. It's not as cut and dry as, as people make it out to be. There's other factors. There's other reasonings of why we are drawn to what we are drawn to. And then it becomes a problem and all that other stuff. The opposite of addiction is connection. And through podcasts like this, like yours, we can find a connection. We can find a community. We can find something that resonates with us. I've said it so many times on this podcast. I treat my recovery like a buffet. I grab my tray and I walk down and I go, I like this. I like this. This tastes like crap. I'm going to put that back. And you know what? I'm going to get a double helping of this because this really makes sense to me. And at the end, when I go to pay off, this is what my recovery looks like. And this is what my bill and I can do this. This is makes sense to me. Somebody else might have a double helping of this or whatever it is. You've got to find what works for you. So you've got to well, find I mean, your community. We have, we have two people right here that have different styles. Like you said, Cameron, you're a 12 step guy and 12 step is something you've been involved in, you know, I guess at least for six and a half years. Mm-hmm. And Casey, you're not a 12-step guy. Nope. That didn't really resonate with you. Yet, what's the result? Both of you guys are are not just sober, but you're in recovery. And I love that, what all that entails is being a person in recovery. Uh, and I've said this before, I'll say it again. Some of the most uh, uh, vivacious and active people in our communities that are doing good are people in recovery. They're giving back and doing a lot of great stuff and helping our communities out. And so however you get there, 
How many ways are there, Casey Epps, over? Man? Over over a thousand. Yeah, there's at least a thousand. Can yeah. put a number on it this yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter how you get there. You get there, and then you start giving back. And I, I think it's fantastic. So uh, I guess that would be our takeaway for the show today. If people want to find out more information about your podcast or your Instagram or all the things that you're doing, uh, Cameron, where do they go? Uh, we have a website. It's uh, the other side of helppodcast.com. Um, we are pretty big on Instagram. Um, it's uh, other side of hell underscored recovery pod. And we're on Spotify, anywhere you listen. And we're also on YouTube. So check us out. Well, I appreciate you taking your time uh, and coming down here and sharing your story. Uh, I've heard great things about you in the recovery community, so I'm glad you finally uh, were able to come down and be on the podcast. If there's anything we can ever do for you, don't hesitate to ask. Dr. Matt, good to have you back. Josh, the producer, is super excited. He was like, you were good last week, but without 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 Matt, it's just not the I, podcast. I pay off Josh to say I don't believe like that. that. I don't believe that at all. But thank you for listening, and thank you to our sponsor, knowyourscript.org. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.